The stormy winters come at last with snow and rain and bitter blast. Ponds and brooks are frozen o'er. We cannot sail there anymore. The little birds are flown away to warmer climes than ours. They'll come no more till gentle May calls them back with flowers. Oh, then the darling birds will sing from their neat nests in the trees. All creatures wake to welcome spring and flowers dance in the breeze. With patience wait till winter is o'er and all lovely things return. Of every season, try the more some knowledge or virtue to learn. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Alexis and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of the seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. Now is the season of the winter solstice, or Toji. Spanning from December 22nd to January 4th, this season begins with the darkest days of the year. Yet even as the longest night falls, life has already begun to sprout under the snow. The season of the winter solstice is preceded by the mini-season heavy snow and followed by the mini-season early cold. The wheel of the year continues its turning, and from the winter solstice onwards, the days will become brighter and warmer once again. As in every season, there's lots to explore, especially in the traditions that shape our lives as we begin our passage into this special period. As the old year ends, the new year begins, and we're ready for it. Let's set out. The season of the winter solstice begins in the last few days on the last page of the calendar. December brings with it so much to celebrate. This is truly a mini-season of endings and beginnings. Our season takes its name from the day on which it begins, an auspicious day indeed, the winter solstice. So, so the, the shortest, shortest day came, and, and the, the year, year died, died. And, and everywhere down, down the centuries, centuries of the, the snow-white snow world, world came, came people singing, dancing, to drive the dark away. We referenced this line by Susan Cooper last year in our December 2020 episode as the winter solstice ends the season of heavy snow and begins truly in this mini-season. Indeed, the days slip and cascade into the next. There's a sense that time is pulling us towards the year-end faster and faster, and out we arrive, tumbling into the new year. What a whirl. Speaking of 
Speaking of world, this mini season is without a doubt one of the most magical times of the entire year. And in the spirit of magic and mystery, like the advent calendar, we will treasure and observe each day as it passes. I like that advent analogy. Every day is a joyful surprise, like an advent calendar around this time of year, each to be savored, full of light and delight. And speaking of light, let's talk a bit about the winter solstice itself, which is also called the hemal solstice or hibernal solstice. It occurs when the Earth's poles reach its maximum tilt away from the sun. The winter solstice is perhaps, among all other seasonal changes, the one most deeply and personally felt by us as humans. We have been celebrating the winter solstice for thousands of years, on every continent. As Carolyn McVicker Edwards writes in her lovely book, The Return of the Light, We live on an earth where change is the only thing we can be sure of, and our silky bodies, webbed with wisdom belied by the rushings of our 21st century lives, have the pacings of plants budding and light expanding. At the moment of the winter solstice, we stand at the brink of external and internal change. Though we now light our world with bulbs and take for granted not only the external day, but often even our food, we still make the return of the sun's light a joyful metaphor for social and personal renewal. I think this passage cuts to the heart of why we have so many holidays across cultures that are centered around light at this time of year. As the seasons go through cycles, so do we look for cycles in our own personal lives. That theme of renewal and hope is something we feel within us as the life-giving sun begins its return. Something we talk about quite a lot here on Season by Season is how we measure time by calendar systems. The winter solstice gives us a chance to look closely at some fascinating calendar changes, which form our modern year-end. Yes, we've discussed lunar calendars and solar calendars before. Ancient people measured time by seasonal changes, as we've discussed at length. Back then, there was no need to reconcile the yearly solar cycle with the lunar cycle. This only became an issue as states and governments began to form. With complex work and trade systems, it became important to unify the ritual customs and observances celebrated since ancient times with more precise measurements of time for business dealings and keeping records. The Roman calendar attempted to reconcile the 354-day lunar year and the 366-day solar year by introducing 12 intercalary days. 12 is a number we hear time and time again when talking about year-end festivities, and this is where it begins. The first of these intercalary days was celebrated on December 25th as Brumalia, the festival of the winter solstice. This was followed by Saturnalia, a time of wild partying to honor the god Saturn, an agricultural deity who represented the sun at midwinter. Centuries later, as the Roman Empire came under Christian rule, the customs of Brumalia and Saturnalia were absorbed into a new holiday, Christ's Mass. The 12 intercalary days became the 12 days of Christmas under the Roman Catholic Church. And the old rites of gathering and feasting, gift-giving, 
drinking, dancing, and proclamations of peace all came to form the holiday rituals we recognize today. Midwinter spring is its own season, sempiternal, though sodden toward sundown, suspended in time between pole and tropic. When the short day is brightest with frost and fire, the brief sun flames the ice on pond and ditches in windless cold that is the heart's heat. Reflecting in a watery mirror a glare that is blindness in the early afternoon, and glow more intense than blaze of branch or brazier stirs the dumb spirit. No wind, but Pentecostal fire in the dark time of the year. There are many legends and myths about the winter solstice. One of my favorites is the battle between the wren and the robin and the holly and oak king. The wren and the holly king represent winter and darkening days, while the robin and the oak represent summer and brightening days. Every solstice, these two kings would battle, their avian familiars at their side. As A. a. Godard notes, at midwinter, the holly king is at his low point. The oak king, resting since his midsummer defeat, comes again to challenge holly to a battle. At the winter solstice, the holly king is defeated and dies, making way for the reinvigorated oak king, who will usher in the waxing of the renewed sun. Here's a poem by John Webster about the robin and the wren and the bodies they guard of the unburied kings. Call for the robin redbreast and the wren, since o'er shady groves they hover, and with leaves and flowers do cover the friendless bodies of unburied men. Call unto his funeral doll, the ant, the field mouse, and the mole, to rear him hillocks that shall keep him warm, and, when gay tombs are robbed, sustain no harm. But keep the wolf far thence, that's foe to men, for with his nails, He'll dig them up again. Although this poem is a little dark, the robin and the wren have a deep symbolism all their own. For now, though, keep an eye out for robins. The first robin you see after the solstice before it flies away is considered a sign of good luck. In the spirit of firsts of the new year, which we talked about in our New Year's episode last year, the first robin would be Hatsukomodori in Japanese, wouldn't it? Here's a nursery rhyme about the robin, perhaps taking refuge in the days before the solstice battle. The north wind doth blow, and we shall have snow. And what will poor robin do then? Poor thing. He'll sit in a barn and keep himself warm, and hide his head under his wing. Poor thing. As we're talking about winter solstice myths and legends, may I share one of my favorites? I absolutely love the legend of the Yule Cat. Ah yes, the Yule Cat. 
listeners, we discuss Yule and Yuletide more in depth in our Heavy Snow episode from 2020. But to briefly summarize, Yule is the festival of the winter solstice that was historically celebrated by Germanic peoples in pre-Christian Europe. The Yule Cat, or Yola Katzerin, is an Icelandic spirit of Yule who, get this, eats children that don't receive new clothes for Yuletide. That sounds pretty harsh. But I guess scaring children into good behavior around the holidays is a familiar tradition. I'd rather receive coal than be eaten, though. I'd like to think that the legend of the Yule Cat is also meant to inspire generosity towards those less fortunate. After all, if a gift of socks for your friend is the difference between life and death, well, that puts a different perspective on holiday preparations, doesn't it? I seem to remember... You wrote a poem about the Yule Cat a couple of years ago, didn't you, Kit? Not exactly. I became interested in the Yule Cat and was inspired by an Icelandic poem by Johannes Ur Katlem. There's even a Bjork song that uses this poem for lyrics. But I couldn't find an English translation that rhymed, so I took it upon myself to adapt it. Now, I don't speak Icelandic, and I'm not exactly a poet, so it's pretty loose. But I had fun with it anyway. Let's hear it. Now listen and learn of the Yule Cat, whose legend is dark and grim. No one knew where he came from, nor what became of him. His whiskers are sharp as needles, his back arches with furious rage. His claws dart from his shaggy paws as he begins his yuletide rampage. Hungry and wild, he prowls through the bitter yuletide snow. Yet it was not cold that made people shiver wherever the yule cat did go. Despair befell those who heard the yell of that huge and vicious yule cat. T'was not mice, but men he hunted. Everybody knew that. He preyed upon the very poor, who received no new clothes for yule, those whose lives were very hard when winter was especially cruel. So the mothers of the houses all would knit and work their spinning wheels to make a dress or scarf or hat or socks with colorful heels. For you mustn't let the cat get hold of the innocent. The children must have something new to wear. Each year, each parent is vigilant. So when candles were lit on Yule Eve, and the cat's glowing eyes peered in, the little ones showed off their clothes proudly, and celebration at last could begin. Some might get new shoes, or an apron with a ruffled hem. Whatever was needed, as long as it was new, that would be enough to save them. The Yule Cat could not eat them, you see, if they had new clothes to put on. He'd growl and he'd hiss, but after this, he eventually had to move on. Is the cat more than legend? I cannot say, but I can tell you this much is true. As long as each Yuletide you have new clothes to wear, he'll never have to come visit you. Now, you might be thinking of helping, where help is needed most each year. There are children with nothing, remember. Your gifts surely would bring great cheer. Those who live in a lightless world sometimes need a little help, it's clear. So help where you can, and I wish that you'll have a Merry Yule and a Happy New Year. Aw, you made a gigantic cat that eats children during the holidays seem somehow kind of cute. Thanks for sharing, Kit.
sorts of traditions and folklore surrounding the winter solstice. Listeners, we admit this episode will tend towards European culture and traditions around the winter solstice and Christmas. However, the winter solstice is, of course, an important occasion in cultures around the world. The winter solstice is known as the Dongji Festival in China, and is one of the most important festivals of the year, and lasts for two weeks. Dongji is so important that it's only second to the Spring Festival in China, which falls around February. Just like with Western solstice practices, Dongji is about the balance and harmony in the cosmos, represented in China through yin and yang. Following the festival, the daylight hours will increase and positive energy will come flowing in. You see this association symbolized in the I Ching hexagram Fu, meaning returning. Family and food is also an important part of the festival. Here's a saying about Dongji. When every household mashes rice to make dumplings, we know that the winter solstice has come. That's because during this time, families gather and prepare glutinous rice dumplings, which symbolize reunion. There's a similar tradition in Japan. Making mochi, or glutinous rice cakes, is part of New Year preparations in Japan. The days for making mochi are usually from December 25th to the 28th. It used to be done ritually, with the whole village coming together to pound the rice with mallets until it became a paste. In Shinto tradition, each grain of rice is representative of a human soul, so the process of pounding mochi was a reflective and spiritual one. Nowadays, most families make mochi with a kitchen appliance, although the old way of pounding mochi with a large mallet is still practiced at shrines or as a community event at elementary schools. Once the mochi is complete, some are set aside for offerings, and others are used in recipes to eat on New Year's Day. Soft, chewy mochi can be used in sweet or savory dishes, and one particularly special recipe is that of ozoni soup. This is one of the most auspicious dishes to eat on New Year's Day for good health and good luck in the new year. But you have to be careful. The sticky mochi can be very hard to swallow. Personally, I prefer my mochi in zanzai, which is a sweet soup made with azuki beans. Very warming on a cold winter's day. You and your sweets, Kit. We'll talk a little bit more about New Year's food later on, and we'll include recipes on our website, seasonbyseason.org. Here are some classic haiku about New Year's mochi. Even dawn gets closer to the last day of the year. The sound of pounding mochi. In my hut too, New Year's arrives. The Zoni Vendor. With the poor man who lives next door, I share some mochi. The year ends fast. With the echo of rice cake pounding, I sleep alone. This last haiku, written by Matsuo Basho, sounds a little lonely. It seems to tell a story. Since Basho lived alone, he had no one to pound rice cakes with, and could only hear the echo of mochi pounding coming from his neighbors. This end-of-year loneliness, while other families are getting together to celebrate, is a pretty common feeling for those spending the holiday alone, I think. Here's a poem by Dufu written about the winter festival. Every year I pass the winter solstice alone in a foreign land. 
Every day I suffer from depression and sorrow. In this place, I am the poorest and oldest one. Everywhere in the world, families get together this day. With my walking stick, I climb on the hill to watch the snowy scenery, imagining myself in jade, leaving the palace after meeting with the emperor. This poem reminds me, Kit, have you heard of the Sunrise Walkers? I first learned of this last year when I was researching our heavy snow episode. This is the tradition of taking a walk before sunrise on the winter solstice to welcome the sun. Last year, my mom and I went on a walk on a dark, snowy morning in upstate New York. It was fantastic. Listeners, why not give it a try? Ah yes, this mini-season is known for these types of contemplative walks. Says Liza Weaver Bricky of Sunrise Walkers, the midwinter period is when we enter into a series of days that end with the Epiphany Walk. This time of year, which is a time for meditation, awareness of your body, prayers for the world, or dedication to someone you know, is a very powerful time. The earth has reached its fullness with the sun's most southerly journey. These several weeks around the solstice, there is an apparent stillness of the sun. Well, don't forget that the word solstice means sun stands still, so that makes sense. The solstice walk also reminds me of the winter spiral, which I learned about when I was a school child. The winter spiral consists of winter greens and candles formed in a spiral on the ground, which you follow like a maze towards the center. The spiral is ancient and symbolizes the inward turning we tend to experience as the nights grow longer and the cold drives us indoors. It is a practice of reflection on the past year and preparation for the next. I seem to remember that last year you made a winter spiral as well in your parents' backyard. That's right. On the winter solstice, I created a snowy spiral path decked with candles. Everyone in my family took a turn walking the spiral. It was truly special, and something I would encourage anyone with access to outdoor space to create. You could even make one in your driveway. You could use fallen branches and leaves and boughs to form the structure, or add a few candles. Here is a poem by Nancy Foster about the winter spiral. Deep midwinter drawing near, darkness in our garden here. One small flame yet bravely burns to show a path whichever turns. Earth, please bear us as we go, seeking light to send a glow. Branches green and moss and fern, mark our path to trace each turn. Brother animals teach us too, to serve with patience as you do. We walk with candle toward the light, while earth awaits with hope so bright. In the light which finds new birth, love may spread o'er all the earth. Deep midwinter drawing near, May light arise in our garden here. Listeners, to see pictures of a winter spiral, please visit our website, seasonbyseason.org. Yule is a time of myth and legend, darkness and light, when we keenly feel the passage of time. 
For even as the winter solstice arrives every year and we pause to observe it, we cannot help but feel compelled to look back at all the other solstices and winter holidays which have come before. Speaking of the passage of time, we better get a move on with this episode. We have the entire mini-season to go, and we're still just talking about the winter solstice. Not that I mind, of course. I could probably devote an entire episode to just this one day. You're right. This mini-season isn't just magical, it's busy. Here's a poem in that spirit. Take a cup of thoughtfulness. Take a cup of love. Take the herbs that cheer and bless, drawn from stores above. Take a pinch or two of pains, and an ounce of wit, and of secrecy two grains, just to flavor it. Cook it at the fire of zest, seeking not your own. You will have the merriest Christmas ever known. love caroling kit. I think it might be my favorite thing about the holidays. It's just like that poem we heard said. Seeking not of your own, you will have the merriest Christmas ever known. I love filling up everyone with cheer and happiness, doing something together with friends, and maybe warming up afterwards with some mulled wine or hot cocoa. What about you, Kit? Do you like caroling? Yes, absolutely. There is no better way to truly get into the spirit of togetherness than by singing carols. As our friends Annie Peterson and Peter Blood of Rise Up Singing have said, singing together strengthens connections among people and community, builds hope, creates resilience, and opens hearts. I have absolutely felt that when singing carols. And Pete Seeger used to say that if there is a human race still here in a hundred years, it will likely be in part because people sang together. All right then. What's your favorite Christmas carol? There are a lot of good ones. It's difficult to choose. When I was a kid, I loved the counting and repetition of the 12 days of Christmas, of course. Lately, in the last few years, I learned Gaudete, and maybe it's my new favorite. You can hear the joy and exhilaration in it. And I admit, singing in Latin just feels fancy. Let's listen. What about you, Alexis? What's yours? That's a tough one. Really. But I think my old standby is Good King Wenceslas. And my new favorite is Christmas Comes Anew, also known as Sing We Now of Christmas from France. Here's the choir from the First Congregational Church of Los Angeles performing. Just from on high, say shepherds come and 
It wouldn't be season by season if we didn't go into the history of carols and carolings a bit. As you might imagine, they have a long one. And they didn't start out having anything to do with Christ, Christmas, or winter. In fact, songs were sung all season long and tied to pagan traditions and celebrations. Later, with Christianity, singing Latin hymns were popular, but over the centuries gradually diminished. In 1223, St. Francis of Assisi started nativity plays in Italy, where people in plays sang song or canticles in local dialect. This caught on and new carols in everyday language spread throughout France, Spain, Germany, and other European countries. Yet again, carols and caroling were dying out until the Victorian era, when there was a renewed interest in them. Many thanks in part to Charles Dickens, but more on that later. Please continue, Kit. <laughs> During the Victorian era, people wanted new carols to sing, like our old favorite, Good King Wenceslas Alexis. Caroling was also communal in different ways than we would imagine. Christmas historian James Cooper notes, Before carol singing in places like churches became popular, there were sometimes official carol singers called waits. They were called waits because they sang on Christmas Eve. Another name for Christmas Eve is watch night or wait night, because of the shepherds who were watching their sheep when the angels appeared to them. And this is just the very annotated history of carols, dear listeners. We hope that you have carols in your life this mini-season, whether on the radio or singing them yourself. Nothing conjures up joy quite like song and singing. Let's conclude our exploration of carols and listen to The Moon Shines Bright, also known as The Waits Carol. Another Kiko, or seasonal phrase for this time of year, is the nutcracker. Ah yes, this is the season of cracking walnuts and almonds in front of an open fire, is it not? Perhaps eating a mandarin orange or two. Actually, I was referring to the Nutcracker Ballet by Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, based on the book by E.T.A. Hoffman. Yes, that too. I love listening to the Nutcracker during holidays. 
Doesn't the overture remind you of preparing for a holiday party? That flurry and anticipation and joy we feel around this time of year. Yes, definitely. And I have happy memories of listening to this music with you when we were kids. The story of Clara and the Nutcracker is well known, as that is what is performed in the ballet. On Christmas Eve, Clara awakens the Nutcracker, who, with her help, defeats the Mouse King. Clara and the Nutcracker then journey to the Land of Sweets. But less well-known is the backstory of how the Nutcracker Prince came to be, and is a story within a story in the original Hoffman novel. Here's an abridged version of the tale. Once upon a time, there was a kingdom ruled by a king and queen who also had a beautiful daughter named Princess Perlipat. The kingdom also had another royal line, the Mouse Queen and her children. One day, the Mouse Queen tricked the queen into allowing her and her mouse children to gobble up the lard that was supposed to go into the sausage that the king was to eat at dinner that evening. The king, enraged at the Mouse Queen for spoiling his supper and upsetting his wife, had his court inventor, Drosselmeyer, create traps for the Mouse Queen and her children. The Mouse Queen, angered at the death of her children, swore that she would take revenge on the young, beautiful Princess Perlipat. Yet before she could do so, the Queen surrounded the Mouse Queen with cats, which were supposed to be kept awake by being constantly stroked. However, inevitably, the nurses who did so fell asleep, and the Mouse Queen magically turned Perlipat ugly, giving her a huge head, a wide grinning mouth, and a cottony beard like a nutcracker. The king blamed Drosselmeyer and gave him four weeks to find a cure. In the end, Drosselmeyer had no cure, but went to his friend, the court astrologer. The two read Perlipat's horoscope and told the king that the only way to cure her was to have her eat the nut Krakatuk, which must be cracked with their own teeth and handed to her by a man who had never been shaved nor worn boots since birth and who must, without opening his eyes, hand her the kernel, and take seven steps backwards without stumbling. The king sent Drosselmeyer and the astrologer out to look for both, charging them on pain of death not to return until they had found them. The two men journeyed for many years without finding either the nut or the man, until finally they returned home to Nuremberg and found the nut in the possession of Drosselmeyer's cousin, a puppet maker. His son turned out to be the young man needed to crack the nut Krakatuk. The king, once the nut had been found, promised Perlipat's hand to whomever could crack it. Many men broke their teeth on it before Drosselmeyer's nephew finally appeared. He cracked it easily and handed it to Perlipat, who swallowed it and immediately became beautiful again. But Drosselmeyer's nephew, on his seventh backward step, stepped on the Mouse Queen and stumbled, and the curse fell on him, giving him a large head, wide grinning mouth, and cottony beard. In short, making him a nutcracker. The ungrateful Perlipat, seeing how ugly he had become, refused to marry him and banished him from the castle. Alas, poor young Drosselmeyer. Yet we know how the story goes from here. After he meets Clara, and the happy ending which follows in the ballet. Before we leave the land of sweets, Alexis, I'm curious, what is your favorite nutcracker sweet? Ah, 
That's an easy one. Without a doubt, the waltz of the flowers. And my second favorite is the pas de jeu. I love both of those too. And I also love the buoyant joy of the waltz of the snowflakes. Let's listen. The Nutcracker and Caroling are great musical kigo, which we can enjoy throughout this mini-season, and indeed throughout the month of December and into parts of January. I think another person who represents the Christmas season, and perhaps Christmas Eve especially, is Charles Dickens. Indeed, it couldn't be Christmas without us bringing up Charles Dickens and his A Christmas Carol, one of his best-known works. Time and again, I am moved by this story. Ebenezer Scrooge's transformation and the three spirits of Christmas are as familiar to me as Christmas itself. A Christmas Carol is a story of love and redemption, but it is also a story of darkness and shadow. Like much of Charles Dickens' writings, themes of poverty and social injustice pervade throughout and remind us of the importance of another theme apt for this mini-season goodwill towards men. One place you certainly found goodwill towards men was at the annual Dickens Fair in the Bay Area, wasn't it, Alexis? Ah, uh, ye old Dickens Fair. I had so much fun visiting it a few times when I was a teenager. It made a big impression on me. It was like stepping into another time and place. As the Dickens Fair website says, when you enter the great Dickens Christmas Fair, you discover the world as Charles Dickens believed it should be. A place filled at once with the joys of human expression, music, dance, theater, art, conversation, friendship, family, fine food and drink, and goodwill. 
The Great Dickens Christmas Fair, for those who have never attended, is perhaps a uniquely American experience. In England, Dickensian evenings are held sometimes for charity, but the Dickens Fair to me feels much more like a Renaissance pleasure fair. The concept is similar. Actors and performers wearing historical costumes entertain crowds of fairgoers amid historically inspired stands full of food, drink, arts, crafts, and merchandise. It's easy to spend a lot of money at the Dickens Fair. But also, I agree with you, Alexis. It's a surefire way to feel that holiday spirit. It's fun to interact with the entertainers. I always learn something new when I go. As Dickens himself wrote, I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time, when it has come around, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year, when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely. Hear, hear. Dickens in particular reminds me that there is light and shadow, joy and sorrow during this holiday season. Alexis, I'm sure you've heard the term Blue Christmas? Yes, and not just the Elvis Presley song. Blue Christmas is when some churches and community organizations hold a service which honors people that have lost loved ones and are experiencing grief. Let's listen to a poem which reminds us that sometimes the holidays can be a difficult time and we should take care of one another. Bittersweet Christmas Blue by Porfirio Figueroa. Winter solstice approaches and the light settles for the longest night of what has been the longest year. I'm melancholic, a night without you. Bittersweet Christmas, blue. Quietly I settle into the bridge to sanity. My body gives in, spirit tired, as the day seeks night to restore, and I what the future holds. Bittersweet Christmas, blue. In contemplation, I compose the next day's sunrise and hope to offer sooth to avoid yesterday's fall. Reset the clock of lost time. Bittersweet Christmas, blue. The direction is pale, where once you took my hand together to seek destiny like diamonds pointed to the horizon of light is now gone. Bittersweet Christmas, blue. Dusk, long night, pre-dawn, sunrise comes. Bittersweet Christmas sets our destiny, alone and blue. During this time of year, it may be comforting to be around friends and family to help ease one's burdens. So please, listeners, if you are sad and lonely this holiday season, perhaps consider reaching out. A cup of hot cocoa shared with a friend goes a long way. I found a hopeful passage about Christmas time from a lesser-known tale by Dickens. This passage may strike a chord in all of us. 
It's from the story, What Christmas Is As We Grow Older, and it's a reminder of the renewal we feel in this season, even amid the dark days. Therefore, as we grow older, let us be more thankful that the circle of our Christmas associations and of the lessons that they bring expands. Let us welcome every one of them and summon them to take their places by the Christmas hearth. Welcome, old aspirations, glittering creatures of an ardent fancy, to your shelter underneath the holly. We know you and have not outlived you yet. Welcome, old projects and old loves, however fleeting, to your nooks among the steadier lights that burn around us. Welcome all that was ever real to our hearts, and for the earnestness that made you real, thanks to heaven. Do we build no Christmas castles in the clouds now? Let our thoughts, fluttering like butterflies among these flowers of children, bear witness. Before this boy, there stretches out a future brighter than we ever looked on in our old romantic time, but bright with honor and with truth. Around this little head on which the sunny curls lie heaped, the graces sport as prettily, as airily, as when there was no scythe within the reach of time to shear away the curls of our first love. Upon another girl's face near it, placider but smiling bright, a quiet and contented little face, we see home, fairly written, shining from the word as rays shine from a star. We see how, when our graves are old, other hopes than ours are young, other hearts than ours are moved. How other ways are smoothed, how other happiness blooms, ripens, and decays. No, not decays. For other homes and other bands of children not yet in being, nor for ages yet to be arise and bloom and ripen to the end of all. Welcome everything. Welcome alike what has been and what never was and what we hope may be to your shelter underneath the holly, to your places round the Christmas fire, where what is sits open-hearted. In yonder shadow, do we see obtruding furtively upon the blaze an enemy's face? By Christmas Day, we do forgive him. If the injury he has done us may admit of such companionship, let him come here and take his place. If otherwise unhappily, let him go hence, assured that we will never injure nor accuse him. On this day, we shut out nothing.
it's high time we talk about the Food of Christmas kit. For as far as we've come in this episode, our discussion of holiday food has been far too sparse. Now is the season of Christmas parties, overindulgence, roasts and baking, and your tummy becoming uncomfortably tight. <laughs> You're right, Alexis. We need to dwell much more on the carnal desires of food and eating. Where shall we begin? I'll get us started with a good sweet of the season, gingerbread. Excellent choice. Well, first a bit about ginger itself. Ginger root was first cultivated in ancient China, where it was commonly used as a medical treatment. From there, it spread to Europe via the Silk Road. During the Middle Ages, it was favored as a spice for its ability to disguise the taste of preserved meats. According to food historian Tori Ave, the hard cookies, sometimes gilded with gold leaf and shaped like animals, kings and queens, were a staple at medieval fairs in England, France, Holland, and Germany. Queen Elizabeth I is credited with the idea of decorating cookies in this fashion, after she had some made to resemble the dignitaries visiting her court. Tori continues that gingerbread houses originated in Germany during the 16th century. The elaborate cookie-walled houses decorated with foil in addition to gold leaf, their popularity rose when the Brothers Grimm shared the story of Hansel and Gretel, in which the main characters stumbled upon a house made entirely of treats deep in the forest. It is unclear whether or not the continued popularity of gingerbread houses was a result of the popular fairy tale or vice versa. The charming tradition of building and decorating gingerbread houses at Christmas time has also become a serious event in some places. In Bergen, Norway, every year since 1991, gingerbread houses have gone on display to create a gingerbread town, or pepperkakebjen. Every year, schoolchildren help to create the houses using only edible ingredients. Over the years, this has grown into the world's largest gingerbread display. Ooh, yes. I've always wanted to see that. Listeners, we'll have some pictures of this display on our website, seasonbyseason.org, so please check it out. You know, in Norway and throughout Scandinavia, Christmas is really an event that lasts far beyond December 25th. In a part of the world that is so dark for so long at this time of year, it makes sense to celebrate the light for as long as you can. Here in the United States, we think of December 25th as the big Christmas event. That's the day for it. In Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, it's Christmas Eve, or Julaften, that is the big day for celebration. Of course, celebration continues on the 25th and 26th too, but it's on Julaften that presents are exchanged and the family gets together for a big meal. Just like Christmas Eve is a day of anticipation, so too is the day before Christmas Eve in Scandinavia. That day is called Lil Julaften, or Little Christmas Eve. Lil Julaften is full of its own joy and festivities, baking, decorating the home, and spending time with loved ones, getting into that holiday spirit that happily lasts for several more days at least. Seems like the perfect time to put up those gingerbread displays. Yes, you're right. Gingerbread, or pepperkake in Norwegian, is probably one of the most popular holiday treats in Norway. Though there are, of course, lots to choose from. By the way, talking of gingerbread, I'm reminded of the gingerbread men from Louisa May Alcott's allegorical short story, The Candy Country. This is certainly a story that's about many things besides just tasty treats, but the imagery, in Alcott's style, is certainly delicious. 
Gingerbread, go to the head. Your task is done, a soul is one. Take it and go where muffins grow, where sweet loaves rise to the very skies and biscuits fair perfume the air. You've reminded me of one of my favorite holiday traditions. Again and again, I return to Louisa May Alcott's Little Women to get into a Christmas time mood. The March sisters are familiar friends who help bring joy and light into the Christmas season. We shared a passage from Little Women in our Heavy Snow episode, all about the joy of Christmas preparations. It's such a beloved story. Though Joe March opines, Christmas won't be the same without any presents when they give away their Christmas breakfast to a poor family and their own celebration becomes more joyful as a result. This passage always warms my heart. And when they went away, leaving comfort behind, I think there were not in all the city four merrier people than the hungry little girls who gave away their breakfast and contented themselves with bread and milk on Christmas morning. I enjoy the book, but I confess that it's the 1994 movie adaptation that I grew up with that solidifies Little Women's Christmas connection for me. My mother and I make time to watch this movie together every December. It's become one of our family traditions. We settle in with hot chocolate, or in recent years, mulled cider or wine, and there's nothing cozier. I like that kit. Family traditions are an important part of any holiday, and you bring up one of my favorites, too. Settling down with a hot drink. Absolutely. After all, is it really winter if we don't warm up with hot drinks? Whether it's hot chocolate or hot apple cider, hot buttered rum or hot toddy, hot drinks add a special touch of comfort to the season. The cold temperature outside makes that drink taste all the more sweeter. And there are also so many kinds of warm drinks, I'm sure you can find one that suits you. In recent winters, I've been trying different kinds of mulled wine. Glavine, Glug, Vinchot, Smoking Bishop. There are popular preparations all over. There's also Winter Wassail, a warm mulled cider drink that I tried for the first time at the Dickens Fair. Wassailing is both singing carols door to door and toasting with this mulled cider drink. It's yet another delicious holiday tradition. Let's listen to a verse from a classic Christmas carol and New Year's song. Here we come a wassailing. Here we come a wassailing among the leaves so green. Oh, here we come a wandering so fair to be seen. Love and joy come to you and to you your wassail too. And God bless you and send you a happy new year. And God send you a happy new God bless the master of his house, likewise the mistress too. And all the little children that round the table go. Love and joy come to you, and to you your wassail too. And God bless you and send you a happy new year. And God send you a Listeners, if you'd like to try wassailing for yourself, we'll include a few methods for different hot beverages, non-alcoholic and alcoholic, on our website. Do you have a favorite warm winter beverage, Alexis? Well, I have to say it's a toss-up between spiced wine, when I'm feeling winter solstice 
or spiked hot chocolate if I'm feeling Christmassy. Ah, it's a wealth of riches at this time of year. Mmm, it does sound delicious. Here's one that I never tried until I lived in Japan. Amazake. Ah, amazake. That's a traditional drink often enjoyed at New Year's. The word amazake literally translates to sweet sake. Yes, but it's not too sweet. I think it's just right. It's made from fermented rice, and it has a creamy consistency. There are two common ways to make amazake, one with a low alcohol content, or there's also a non-alcoholic version. Since it can be made at home, we'll have a recipe for it up on seasonbyseason.org. Winter chrysanthemum. Heating amazake in front of the window. In this haiku, Basho seems to be comparing the color of the winter chrysanthemum to the color of the white amazake. I tried amazake for the first time visiting a shrine for New Year's. The shrine was providing cups for free, and it was just what I needed to warm up and really enjoy the festivities. After that, I wanted to become an amazake connoisseur. I sought out different varieties available, including an instant version with ginger that was so tasty. It's also considered a nutritious and healthy drink, so I felt like I could drink as much of it as I liked, unlike, for instance, hot chocolate. Then again, I did put on a bit of weight that winter. Ah, uh, but that's all part of the overindulgence of the season. I guess that's true. Hey, speaking of seasonal indulgences, we were talking about family traditions earlier. In my family, we always used to leave out cookies and milk on Christmas Eve. In fact, cookies and milk are such a part of my childhood Christmas memories, I was surprised that not everyone takes part in this tradition. Did you leave out cookies and milk, Alexis? Come to think of it, I guess we did. And I seem to remember some years we left out vegetables like carrots and celery. That's sweet of you. People like to leave out cookies for Santa, but you were kind to think of his reindeer, too. Well, I guess our thinking was more along the lines of, Santa may get tired of all those cookies. Santa probably needs to lose some weight after all. Oh, I see. It's been years since I left out anything for Santa, but there is one tradition I've become interested in recent years. One specific to Christmas Eve, actually. The Icelandic tradition of Yola Bokaflod or the Christmas Book Flood. Remember, in Scandinavia, presents are opened on Christmas Eve, and the tradition in Iceland is to start reading the books you receive as presents right away, often while drinking hot chocolate. I love that. That's a tradition I'd like to take part in, too. I think books make fantastic gifts. You may have one to look forward to on Christmas Eve, Kit. Just so you know. Ooh. Well, I've bought a few books to give as gifts already, too. As long as we're on the topic, we've read some wonderful books this year on Season by Season, haven't we? From Winifred Bird's Eating Wild Japan, to John Forty's The Heirloom Gardener, to Lev Perikian's Light Rains Sometimes Fall. I think any of these books would make great gifts for the readers in your life. Oh, absolutely. And how about the books written by our own dear Hiroaki Sato of Hiro's Corner? I can particularly recommend On Haiku and 100 Frogs. 
Speaking of Hiro, we're giving him some time off for the holidays, but don't worry. Hiro's Corner will be back in our next episode. Listeners, we want to hear from you too. What are some of your favorite books of this year? Feel free to share your recommendations on our Facebook page. And we can all look forward to reading more on Christmas Eve and into the new year. Summer fading winter comes, frosty mornings tingling thumbs, window robins winter rooks, and the picture storybooks. Water now is turned to stone, nurse and I can walk upon. Still we find the flowing brooks in the picture storybooks. All the pretty things put by, wait upon the children's eye. Sheep and shepherds, trees and crooks, in the picture storybooks. We may see how all things are, seas and cities near and far, and the flying fairies' looks, in the picture storybooks. How am I to sing your praise, happy chimney corner day, sitting safe in nursery nooks, reading picture storybooks? While we're still talking about Christmas Eve traditions, I think it would be interesting to share a bit more about Christmas in Japan. Christmas in Japan is primarily secular. It's not a day off from work, and many Japanese people don't celebrate the day at all. In fact, instead of a family holiday, it's more popular as a date night. Many city parks are adorned with Christmas lights, and it can be romantic to view these winter illuminations. And as with most holidays, food is definitely a focal point. The Christmas Eve meal in Japan typically consists of fried chicken and for dessert, Christmas cake. Christmas cake in Japan is not like fruit cake, rum cake, or panettone. In fact, it's a light sponge cake covered in whipped cream and strawberries. If you're thinking, why strawberries? After all, they're not exactly seasonal. It may have to do with the fact that Christmas cake in Japan is not really about Christmas, but about prosperity. Christmas cake only became popular in the post-war years, when things like sugar were a decadent luxury. As Japan's economy began to grow, desserts were seen as a symbol among the middle class that they had finally made it. The colors of red and white are heavily symbolic in Japan, as is reflected in the colors on the Japanese flag. Nowadays, leading up to December 25th, you can find Christmas cake absolutely everywhere. You can even buy it at convenience stores. But if you want to try to make it for yourself, you can find a recipe, you guessed it, on our website, seasonbyseason.org. Here in the United States, once December 25th has finally come, and finally gone, the merriment dies down and it feels like Christmas is over. In many other countries around the world, however, Christmas tide is still going strong. The 26th of December is celebrated in many parts of Europe as a second Christmas day. In the UK, Australia, and other countries previously of the British Empire, December 26th is Boxing Day. Boxing Day originated as a day for giving gifts to employees and the less fortunate. In modern times, it's become a shopping holiday when stores launch big sales not dissimilar to Black Friday here in the United States. December 26th is also St. Stephen's Day, a Christian saint's day celebrating St. Stephen. This is the Feast of Stephen, mentioned in that favorite carol of ours, Alexis, Good King Wenceslas. St. Stephen was known for his service to the poor, which could explain the connection to Boxing Day. After December 26th and until New Year's, we enter a period in Norway known as Romjul, 
Romyul doesn't exactly have a direct translation in English, but the sense of it is the time between Christmas and New Year's when no one is sure of what they should be doing. Romyul is a tranquil time of year when families spend time together and forget about the outside world for a while. If you made a gingerbread house for Christmas, you smash it and eat it during the days of Romyul. Even though the days of Romyul aren't public holidays, many employers encourage their employees to take time off during this week. Then again, a lot of shops have special Romyul sales to tidy up their shelves after Christmas. Even though we don't have a word for it, I have still felt that sense of Romyul, I think. During the final days of the year, time seems to move at a different pace. Here are some lyrics written by poet-songwriter Alf Prisian, which capture the feeling of Romyul quite well, I think. One should have been four years old in Romyul when the Christmas lights were shining all day long. And the world was a house with four walls, where the very bliss was a grandmother's lap. Of course, the year is not quite over after Romyul. We have more to celebrate. It's almost time for New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve is at once a reflective and celebratory day. And in Japan, it's much more of a family event than Japan's Christmas was. We mentioned this in our Heavy Snow episode too, but the New Year's festivities really begin with O Soji, or the Big Clean, that typically begins in the days leading up to the New Year. The idea is to start the New Year with a fresh start, including a clean house. The most important part of O Soji, known as Susu Harai, dust cleaning, is the act of cleaning your home and workplace from dust and dirt. While doing susu harai, we also give thanks for the blessings of the previous year, and we clean to purify the spaces for the year to come. In my home, Osoji also incorporates an element of purging, an attempt to clean out closets from unused, unwanted things. Finally shred those important papers, culminates at the end of the year. I have to admit, it's a good feeling to start the year with everything in order, here are a few haiku about Osoji. A winter's night. Osoji complete. A break at last. An argument over the one piece of paper which cannot be thrown away. Another New Year's custom you'll find in Japan is the custom of Nengajo, New Year's greetings, similar to our Christmas cards. Traditionally, Nengajo feature imagery associated with the Chinese zodiac. 2022 is the year of the tiger, so you can imagine there will be lots of cards with cute tigers and tiger cubs. Listeners, were you born in the year of the tiger? The tiger is the third sign of the Chinese zodiac, which consists of 12 animal signs. The tiger is a sign of courage, action, and self-assuredness. People who are born in the year of the tiger are generally optimistic, passionate, and independent. They also have traits of being rebellious, dynamic, and unpredictable. They are quick-tempered, but considerate, affectionate, but careless, or so it is said. 
Interestingly, the fearless and fiery fighter tiger is revered by the ancient Chinese as the sign that wards off the three main disasters of a household. Fire, thieves, and ghosts. Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Back to the Nengajo New Year's cards themselves, they have seen a decrease in popularity over the years. However, I'm confident that their legacy will endure. After all, the custom of sending New Year's greetings dates back to at least the classical era. The custom really caught on when Japan created its postal service in 1871, and the simple postcards required only a name, address, and the simple message of Happy New Year. The important part of Nengajo is ensuring they arrive on time in the first three days or so of the year. Kind of like trying to make sure your Christmas card arrives before Christmas. In Japan, Nengajo are accepted in the mail from December 15th and kept for delivery on New Year's Day. There is an exception to that rule, however. Don't send a New Year's card to anyone who has had a death in the family during the year. Instead, bereaved families will send out warning postcards called Mochu Hagaki to let their contacts know that they will not be celebrating at the end of the year. Once your house is clean and your nengajo are in the mail, the next big aspect of the Japanese New Year's is osechi ryori, or traditional foods associated with the New Year's. Similar to bento boxes, osechi ryori is usually packed in two to three layers of lacquer boxes, ojubako, and there are many dishes in each layer. Every region has their own specialty of what is considered traditional New Year's food, but some nationally popular dishes include sweet rolled omelette, datemaki, candied chestnuts and sweet potatoes, kurikintan, daikon and carrot salad, namasu, pickled lotus root, suryankon, pounded burdock root and chestnut dressing, tataki gobo, and tons more. Listeners, we'll post some osechi ryori resources on our website. For some, cooking for hours to prepare osechi or spending a lot of money to purchase osechi may not be appealing. But here's an affordable and nutritious tradition we can get behind, toshikoshi soba, or end-of-year soba. This is a great tradition, again, dating back several hundred years. The soba noodles symbolize many things in Japan, including enjoying a long life like the long soba noodle to break free from the past like the soba noodle so easily breaks with each bite, to gather strength like the tough buckwheat crop, or to grow your fortune 
just as the buckwheat flour was once used by goldsmiths to gather up leftover gold dust. I think I know what's on the menu on December 31st. Whatever food you enjoy at year-end doesn't change what's at the heart of the New Year's season, which is slowing down and making time for family and friends. In haiku, too, the New Year is considered a very special time, indeed a season all its own. In Japanese literature and the arts, the seasons are spring, summer, fall, winter, and New Year's. The New Year season is called Shinnen, and poetry written around this time includes many of those year's first kigo we talked about in our early cold episode of January 2021. The New Year season lasts from the first day of the New Year to about January 15th, or the night of the full moon, according to the lunar calendar. Let's end our segment on New Year's in Japan with some New Year's haiku. New Year's Day. What I feel has been too much for words. For the words. The first dream of the year. I kept it a secret and smiled to myself. And here's one final poem to see us into the new year. I am the little new year, ho, ho. Here I come tripping it over the snow, shaking my bells with a merry din. So open your doors and let me in. Presents I bring for each and all, big folks, little folks, short and tall. Each one from me a treasure may win, so open your doors and let me in. Some shall have silver and some shall have gold. Some shall have new clothes and some shall have old. Some shall have brass and some shall have tin, so open your doors and let me in. Some shall have water and some shall have milk. Some shall have satin and some shall have silk. But each from me a present may win, so open your doors and let me in. Listeners, thank you for joining us on this extra long and extra special episode of Season by Season podcast. There was a lot to fit into this episode, and we had a lot to omit in making it. But we hope it put you in the holiday spirit, whatever holiday that may be. And you know what, Alexis? This episode marks our last one for 2021. How quickly the year went, didn't it? Wherever you are in the world, whatever you celebrate, thank you for listening to Season by Season this year. We're wishing you light and joy, now and in every season. As we look towards the new year, let the light of the seasons guide you. They come at their own pace, in their own time, each bringing with them something to look out for and to look forward to. This jolly season, some of the kigo, or seasonal words, we covered are the winter solstice, the wren and the robin, the holly and the oak king, the yule cat, the dongji festival, making mochi, ozoni soup, sunrise walks, winter spirals, caroling and carols, the nutcracker, Charles Dickens, blue Christmas, Gingerbread, Leo Ulaften or Little Christmas Eve, Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, Hot Drinks, Wassail and Wassailing, Amazake, Milk and Cookies, Yola Bokaflod or The Christmas Book Flood, Christmas Cake, Boxing Day, and The Feast of St. Stephen, 
Romyul, Osoji, Nengajo, or New Year's cards, Osechi Ryori, Toshikoshi Soba, or Year End Soba, and New Year's Eve. Listeners, what are some other seasonal words you associate with this mini-season? We know we didn't get a chance to discuss tons, so we'd really love to hear from you. Please email your Kigo to our email address, seasonbyseasonpodcast at gmail.com, or feel free to leave a comment on our Facebook page. Do you have too much time on your hands during those intermediary days between Christmas and New Year's? Why not catch up on Season by Season? We're happy to keep you company. You can always listen to old episodes, revisit favorite poems, and take a look at visual examples of Kigo on our website, seasonbyseason.org, the special permanent home for our podcast and all things seasonal. On this episode, you heard poems and prose by Louisa May Alcott, T.S. Eliot, John Webster, Johannes Ur-Katlong, Matsuo Basho, Kobayashi Isa, Masaoka Shiki, Du Fu, Nancy Foster, Amos Russell Witt, E.T.A. Hoffman, Porfirio Figueroa, Charles Dickens, Robert Louis Stevenson, Alf Preissen, Babu, William Blake, Dayo, and Shou. The poems featured in this podcast are in the public domain or used with permission from their creators. We would like to thank our poetry readers for this episode. Anne Chow, Corey Kohler, Zach Piper, Catherine Piper, Julia Holmes Bailey, Melissa Kiewit, Gail Wine, Porfirio Figueroa, Bruce Kaplan, Dan Collier, Carl Smith, Nikki Gempf, and Cyrus Lanthier. Not ready for the holiday season to end? You can enjoy our Spotify companion playlist with music to keep you merry all mini-season long. You can find that information on our website. The holiday brass you heard on this episode was by Calliope Brass, a New York City-based female brass quintet specializing in educational programming. Thank you for letting us use some of your holiday album tunes in our episode. To learn more about Calliope Brass, please visit our website. Thank you as well to Chris Whitaker for his piano renditions of traditional carols. On the eve of the new year, I'd like to share this from our dear Henry David Thoreau. Each new year is a surprise to us. We find that we had virtually forgotten the note of each bird, and when we hear it again, it is remembered like a dream, reminding us of a previous state of existence. How happens it that the associations it awakens are always pleasing, never saddening, reminiscences of our sanest hours? The voice of nature is always encouraging. We hope you find encouragement in the voice of nature in 2022. From Alexis and Kit. Happy Happy New New Year! Year. (laughs) Join us again for our next episode, Deep Cold. See you in another season.
Jesus.